Hey, true crime pod people. I'm Kayla. And I'm Kayla's mom, Alicia. And you are listening to True Crime Exposed. show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to us. If you can, please leave us a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. And now you can also leave a five-star review on Spotify. Doing these things will help us continue to make this podcast and grow this show so we can keep bringing you stories every week. We're glad you made it here for your true crime fix. And today we're taking you to the island of Maui, Hawaii. In today's episode, we will not only be talking about a horrifying case, but we'll also be talking about laws in Hawaii that need change and reform. So I hope you're ready to talk about this case today with me and my mom. Okay, so guys, we are going home. Do you get it? No, we're going home to Idaho. (laughs) We're going home this week. We are headed this week to Maui, Hawaii. Oh, That's not really our home, but it's our ancestors. (laughs) I know. I joked about it in our um, Daybell case that like Hawaii is basically our home. Yes, it is. (laughs) It's not really. But as I talked about then to you guys, you know that my great grandma is Hawaiian. She grew up on Maui in Hana and we're headed there with my family and my grandma and great grandma this week. Woo! I know. I'm so excited. Like, I just feel at home in Hawaii, even though I'm totally not from there. I love it so much. But my great grandma, she really is visiting home. And probably for the last time, she's like, what, 95? 94. 94. Yeah. So she gets to go with us, which is pretty exciting. And since we are headed to Maui this week, I decided to look into a case from Maui. Oh, I know. And it's a really sad one with some important information on laws that need changed. Also, I joke that it's like our home, but I'm not from there. So I'm probably going to mispronounce a lot of the names here. Oh, yeah. So if you know how to say them better than me, mom, let me know as I go through them. I'm going to just try to kind of sound them out. I don't think I will know. Yeah, there's like a lot. So... I tried to look up some, but I'm not sure I'll get it all right and remember everything. (laughs) (laughs) Now, remember, mom, when I called you and you were at work in the NICU and I asked if you knew what the number one cause of death in pregnant women is? Yes. And you were like, oh, I don't know. You started asking all the other nurses because you guys work there with premature babies. So you're all like guessing these medical reasons, which seems like the most logical thing to do. But no, I let you know that the number one cause of death in pregnant women, according to WebMD, is homicide. So murder accounts for roughly 20% of pregnancy related deaths we are literally more likely to die by murder than any other pregnancy-related illness or complication. Ugh, 
I do not like that statistic. Oh, no, I hate it. It's so messed up. It pisses me off. Like, it's just not right. Like, what's wrong with people? Do the men just get stressed out that they're bringing another life into the world and won't be able to take care of it or something? Or I don't know what it is. I mean, that sounds like right, you know? It's just like when you're pregnant, you're at a greater risk of being killed than when you're not. Like that is just so weird. So yeah, it does seem that it plays into like the partner. So I'm assuming most of the time that is the dad or a boyfriend or something that is killing these pregnant women. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, just must not be able to handle it. I don't know. Hmm. I first heard the statistic on Southern Fried True Crime podcast And I had looked it up after hearing it because I was like, there's no way. Like, that seems totally unfathomable, but it was true. And that's when I called you to tell you. So when I came across our case today, I thought it was a perfect time to talk about this statistic and how horrible it is, because unfortunately, this statistic will play into our case. Aww. It's just not right. I always think of the Lacey Peterson case. Yep. When woman, pregnant woman that's murdered gets brought up. Oh, I know. And Scott killed her. She was like, what, seven months pregnant? Yes, she was pretty far. Did you know a lot of people think Scott's innocent? <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how they do. Yeah, I do not. It's too coincidental. He definitely did it, but <laughs> whatever. So let's get into our case today. So Kimberlyn and Robert Scott were married and living in California when they got pregnant with one of their daughters, Carly, Joanne, or Joan Scott, who they actually called Charlie. And this immediately resonated with me because my sister's name is Carly, and most of you know my daughter is Charlie. So her name just drew me to her and to the case like as soon as I read it. Kimberlyn and Robert had at least one other daughter, and her name is Brooke Scott. And at some point, the couple decides to split and they go their separate ways. And it's years later when Kimberlyn has two more daughters, who were Charlie and Brooke's half-sisters, Phaedra and Fiona Ways. These three sisters are the only ones I can confirm, although I have seen random sources that mention possible other sisters. Now, the three I named are in multiple sources and they testify later on in Charlie's case. I read about another sister named Shay, Kimberly, and Brittany, but I'm not sure if those sources are correct or not because I only saw each of those names once. And it was actually so hard for me to find information on Charlie's actual life outside of this crime, which I hate because I love getting to know the victim and where they came from, who they are. So I dug and I dug and I've done the best I can, but the info here surrounding her life is unfortunately sparse. But Charlie, basically, she had like red hair, she's gorgeous, and she loved like color. So she really loved the colors blue and red, and she hardly ever wore black, which is like the opposite of me. But she like just loved to dress herself up in color and like be fun. So sometime after... Charlie's parents split, Kimberlyn makes the move up to Maui, Hawaii. She remarries Johnny Pimpkin, who becomes her girl's stepdad. And in 2009, Charlie is about 23 years old when she meets 20-year-old Stephen Capobianco. Stephen had first met Charlie's sister, Brooke, while working at Mana Foods. 
both Brooke and Stephen had worked here for about a year before Brooke's sister, Charlie, started working there as well. Stephen and Charlie ended up hitting it off and they soon started to date. So the couple decides they wanted to live together. So they move in and live in a home over in Kula. Still on the island of Maui, pretty close to Charlie's mom and sisters who live in Haiku. Eventually, Charlie would live in Makaweo. So, mom, I sent you a map of the island of Maui. So if you zoom in, you can see Kula, Makaweo, and Haiku. They're all right there near each other, and they aren't too far from Kahului. Is that how you say it? Which is where the airport is. Mm-hmm. Kahului, Kahului. Yeah. Wait, so I can't see Kula. Okay, so it's just south if you're looking at the picture of Makaweo. So there's Haiku there on the tip, kind of. Oh, yeah. Okay, I see it. Now I'm going to explain the island as the shape of like a head, a neck, and a torso. So the airport is kind of in what I would call the middle, which would be like that neck area. Then to one side is a smaller side of the island that looks kind of like the head. And on the other side is the larger area that looks like the torso. So Kula, Makaweo, and Haiku are on the torso side. And all the way over to the bottom of the torso is Hana. Between Hana and Haiku slash Makaweo, there is not much except for a road and tons of wilderness. And that road is the famous road to Hana, the Hana Highway. So my great grandma, she grew up there in Hana, down away. I feel like it's not by any city, right? Like it's pretty small. Yeah, there's like a main street that goes through it, and her house was on the that off of that main street. And that's like pretty much the only main street down there. Like it's a very small town. Yeah. And so we drove this road to Hana when we visited for a family reunion back when I was like maybe what twelve years old. I don't know. But it was actually a nightmare (laughs) because I had a ride with my stepdad's brother who came to help watch all the kids and him and his wife are so sweet. But we stopped like two million times to pick fruit off the side of the road. And by the end of the drive, I was like done. And then you were pregnant. So your car stopped like also two million times so that you could throw up every five seconds. (laughs) I was throwing up and peeing my pants at the same time. Oh, you were? Yep. (laughs) That sucks so bad. Because I had such violent, like, gags that it made me pee, too. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I was so sick on that road. Oh, my goodness. It would be a horrible road to drive when you're feeling like that morning sickness that you feel in pregnancy or if you get car sick or something. Oh, yeah. It's, like, very windy, but it is really beautiful, like, It's an incredible drive and experience. It's just long. It has sharp turns. It has bridges that are like one car at a time only. And I've read that it's actually pretty dangerous, but super famous just because of how breathtaking it is. And I am explaining this for a reason, because this road will be important in this case. So Charlie and Steven ended up living together for a couple of years before they decided to call it quits. Their relationship had been great in the beginning. He started out affectionate towards her and she fell in love with him. But as time went on, he grew distant and he started to act like a jerk. He would tell his friends that even though he was living with Charlie, they were just roommates. They weren't romantic. 
And he didn't want to take any photos with Charlie. He didn't talk to her kind. He didn't use any names of affection towards her. He really just stopped caring about her. So obviously this caused a strain in the relationship and for a while the couple did stay living together, but they went into their own separate bedrooms. And Charlie's younger sisters, Phaedra and Fiona, spent a lot of time over at Charlie's house during this time period and they witnessed the not-so-good relationship. Phaedra and Fiona weren't getting along with their stepdad, so they liked to come over to Charlie's and stay on the couch. At the time, Fiona was about 16 years old and Phaedra was 13, and they saw how Charlie and Stephen really weren't together anymore and how Stephen made that very clear. But even though they didn't share a room, Charlie continued to dote on Stephen and do anything for him. Ugh, that's so annoying. I know, like he was just using her and she cared about him, so she continued to do stuff for him and basically, you know, he used her like, to act like a mother, like just taking care of him, doing his laundry, cooking his meals. Yeah, I don't like that. No, me either. And he did absolutely nothing for her in return. Now, Drew Kayser, he was a friend of Stevens and of Charlie's, and he explained the relationship as being fun and playful at first. But as they broke up over and over again, things started to get bad. Drew doesn't remember seeing Stephen abuse her physically or verbally, but the things Stephen said behind her back were big red flags. When Stephen was alone with Drew, he would tell him that he hated Charlie, that she was an effing B-I-T-C-H. Like, he was just rude. Jeez, then why stay living with somebody? I know. I don't know if he was that rude to her face because, like, Drew said specifically that Stephen would say these things when they were away from Charlie. So I'm not sure if Stephen's kind of leading Charlie on at home and then he's like being very mean about her behind her back. Ugh, I hate that. And the relationship was obviously super toxic. It was on again, off again. And finally, the couple decides to go their separate ways for good. It was time to move away from each other. But over the years, they would stay in touch. Again, maintaining this sort of on-again, off-again relationship. But Stephen, he moved over to the Haiku area, which was closer to Charlie's mom and sisters. And it seems that Stephen possibly moved in with family because later on, his grandpa talks about him coming and going from the home. But Charlie, she moved into a place of her own there in Makaweo. She lived here with her two dogs, Nala and Zoe. So I'm assuming they both don't work at the same place anymore? Yes. Steven remains working there at the like Mana Foods or Mana Foods. And Charlie goes on to work at like a visual arts place. And then she'll also end up get like going to school for cosmetology. So she moved on with her life and Stephen continued working there. Okay. Now years have passed and we come to 2013. Charlie is now roughly 27 years old and Stephen is around 24 years old. They've been broken up and living apart for years now, but like I said, they maintained somewhat of a friendship, seeing each other once in a while. And it's early 2013 when Stephen decides to go out to the bar for a few drinks. 
He was not having a good night. He just found out that his current girlfriend was cheating on him. So he needed to get out to have fun and just forget about his troubles. And the bar he decided to go to was in Makaweo, where Charlie lived. So it wasn't this huge surprise when he sees Charlie in the bar. They start talking. Remember, they never completely lost touch with each other, although they were not together for the last couple years. And the night ends with Stephen going back to Charlie's house where the two hooked up. And this did happen once in a while throughout the years. When the morning rolls around and Stephen wakes up to realize that he is at Charlie's house, he quickly gets up and leaves before she has the chance to wake up. And he talks about it later saying, quote, I woke up in the morning before the sun was entirely up and bailed, end quote. Which like, Stephen, you're a douche. <laughs> I don't like you. Oh, <laughs> uh, did she ever get another boyfriend? I don't think so. Not that I've read about or anything. She had a lot of good friends, you know, males that were good friends, but it doesn't seem that she got romantically involved with anyone. That's too bad. It sounds like she might be kind of was hung up on him. Definitely. I do think she was. I think she truly did care about Steven. And I don't think Stephen was as interested in that relationship. And kind of everyone could see that. Mm. Well, months go by after their casual hookup. And during this time, Stephen does get a new girlfriend. And her name is Cassandra Koopstoss, who was actually living in Pennsylvania. So this was a long distance relationship, but she was from Maui and planning to return soon. Now, during this time, Charlie was starting to feel sick. Something was off about her body, and she calls up Stephen one day, telling him that they need to talk. When they meet up, Charlie blurs out the news. I'm pregnant. Oh, and I bet he wasn't happy about it because he had a new girlfriend. Yep, he wasn't that happy because he had a new girlfriend, and he's rude. So Stephen is taken back. He's shocked, and he's like, no, no. I don't want to be a dad. I'm only 24. This is not my plan. What are we going to do about it? Which like, Stephen, grow up. You're 24. You'll survive. Just like take responsibility for your actions. I was 20 when I had my first kid. Like you'll be okay. (laughs) Well, it's like protect yourself if you don't want a baby. I know. Like don't go over to your ex-girlfriend's house and make a baby. (laughs) Be more careful. Anyway, Stephen basically tells Charlie that she has to have an abortion. He doesn't want this baby and he's not going to do this with her. So in October of 2013, Stephen and Charlie do make the drive over to Planned Parenthood in Kahului. And while they are here, they discuss their options for abortion. And Stephen is really pushing Charlie to make an appointment. So they schedule one for Charlie to have the abortion the following month in November of 2013. But then November passes by and Charlie misses her appointment. Planned Parenthood calls her to make sure she's okay to see if she needs to reschedule and she says sure. So she reschedules another abortion appointment for December of 2013. And after she misses that appointment as well, she calls up Planned Parenthood to let them know that she does not want to reschedule her appointment. She's going to keep her baby. 
And soon, Charlie finds out she's going to have a little boy, and she falls in love with her son while he is still growing inside of her. She would name him Joshua Aiden. And guys, I also have a brother named Joshua. Like, all the names in this episode connect with our family. It's so sad. (laughs) Carly, Joshua, Charlie. It's like, I was just like, what is happening? (laughs) Just a coincidence. I know, but it just like drew me into the case because I was like, really? Like, I'm just meant to cover this this week. Yeah. Now, it's that same December 2013 when Charlie calls a little family meeting. She's nervous, but she's also excited to tell her family that she's having a baby. Yes, she's not married or even dating anyone, but she knows she's going to be a good mom. She had her own place, she was working and providing for herself as well as in the process of getting her cosmetology license. She had these dreams of opening up her own salon called Paws and Claws, where she said clients could bring in their dogs and have them groomed while they pampered themselves. (laughs) (laughs) I know her mom was like, oh, that's a cute idea. So she loved animals and she was excited about getting her cosmetology license. So when Charlie's family finds out, they feel all the emotions of getting news like that. They're worried about her, but at the same time, they're happy that she's happy. And they are excited to meet this new member of their family. Charlie's sister actually texts Stephen after the announcement to ask him if he knew that he got Charlie pregnant. But his response was cold. Quote, I thought she had taken care of it. End quote. And it's shortly after this text message exchange that Stephen calls Charlie's sister to ask her how she found out about the pregnancy. And she tells him that Charlie told the family. She announced it. That's kind of weird that he didn't, um, or that during the meeting she didn't give him a little bit more details. Like to her family? Yeah. Like. Yeah, I guess one of her sisters interviewed and was like, she didn't even have to say it was Stephen's. We all just kind of knew. Yeah. So I guess, you know, I don't, I'm not sure why her sister sent that text, but I guess she was just curious if Steven knew, maybe was curious if he was going to be involved. Yeah, but I mean, I guess maybe we're just more open, but I feel like we'd be like, yeah, Steven didn't want me to have it, but I am and I'm going to do it myself. Oh, right. Like saying like, oh, like he doesn't want anything to do with it so don't talk to him about it yeah we are pretty open (laughs) so I feel like we definitely would say that but yeah also sometimes I know like when you care about someone you also try to protect them even though Steven didn't deserve for her to like you know make her family think he's nicer than he is she could have been doing that as well like kind of protecting him so that they didn't like get mad yeah she might have hoped that he'd come around Which is just sad. It just seems like she really cared about him. Yeah. I don't even know what happened, but I can guess. I know. (laughs) It's not good. Now, after he calls her and, you know, her sister says she announces it, he's like, this was not supposed to be what's happening. It's going to ruin all my plans that I have with my girlfriend. Like, boo-hoo, I need to talk to Charlie. Although Stephen was frustrated with Charlie's decision to keep the baby, she really didn't care. It was obvious to her that he didn't want to be involved and he didn't need to be. 
Charlie had accepted the fact that her and Stephen would not be raising this baby together, that she would be a single mom, and she had other people supporting her. She didn't need Stephen. Charlie was best friends with this man named Adam Gaines, and he was married and he had been trying with his wife to get pregnant for a while now. And the couple was having no luck in making a baby of their own. So when they found out Charlie was pregnant and that Stephen was obviously not going to be a support for her, they told her no worries. At this point, Charlie was a very close with both Adam and his wife, and they told her that they would help her raise the baby. In fact, when Charlie had gone to find out the gender of her baby, Adam had come with her to the ultrasound, and he remembers it being a really special moment for them to find out the gender together. And this is an unusual circumstance, yes, but it worked. Charlie was going to be able to keep her baby and then also have, you know, others surrounding her that loved him too and would help her out. Yeah, that's nice. It does seem a little odd, though. Like, why didn't the wife go? Maybe she did, but she wasn't interviewed in the thing I watched on this case. Just Adam was. Mm-hmm. So... I'm not sure. Now, Stephen, he sort of sits on the news that Charlie is keeping the baby for about a month. And then in January of 2014, he decides he has to tell his girlfriend, Cassandra, that his ex-girlfriend, Charlie, is having his baby. Now, Cassandra and Stephen always Skyped for hours on end since she was living down in the States during this time. They would talk about their plans to be together and how much they loved each other. So it's not a shocker that when Steven Skyped her to tell her the big news, his heart was racing. He was nervous about what her reaction would be, how it would affect their relationship. And once he delivers the news, Cassandra is immediately upset. And she tells him, I don't really want to be a stepmom. Like, I'm sorry, but I need some time to myself to think about this. And then she stops talking to Stephen for a few days while she gathered her thoughts and decided on how their relationship would move forward with a baby in the picture. And Stephen hated the silent treatment. He kept trying to get a hold of Cassandra with no response over those few days before she finally answered and told him, you know what, I don't want you to be a deadbeat dad. I don't want you to abandon your child. Like, I'm not super happy about this situation, but we will figure it out. And time continues on to about a month after Stephen has this conversation with Cassandra. Now it's February 9th, 2014. Early on this day, Charlie had met up with her mom and sisters where she was working, the Huey Noeu Visual Arts Center. Charlie had worked on an exhibit here and it was opening that day, so her family came to support her work. And after this, Charlie went over to the Kayser brothers' home. Remember, Drew Kayser was really good friends with Steven, but him and his brother Kurt were also friends with Charlie, and she had come over to their house to give Kurt a haircut. And afterwards, they went out for a little ride up Olinda Road in her forerunner before Charlie drops the boys back off at their mom's house. Now, by the time 6 p.m. rolls around, Charlie makes it over to her sister Brooke's boyfriend's house. The family had decided to gather for a little impromptu one-day-late birthday party for Brooke. The girl's sister, Phaedra, made it over, and Kimberlyn, their mom, brought over some food. 
The family hangs out for a couple hours, they talk and they laugh, and they're just like enjoying each other for Brooke's birthday. Charlie was wearing a blue and white polka dot shirt with a black maternity skirt that came up over her belly. And the family enjoyed trying to fill little Joshua by resting their hands on Charlie's stomach. She was now five months pregnant. By 8 p.m., Charlie was ready to head out for the night. She told Brooke that she needed to go get gas, but the gas station nearby was closed. So the family offers to have someone follow Charlie home just to make sure she makes it. But she's like, no, I'll be okay. She could get home with the gas that she had and she would just get gas before she went any further. And with that, Charlie walks out the door and everyone just says goodbye very casually. Her mom yells over, bye, love you. And no one was worried about having some big goodbye. They knew they would see Charlie the next day. On February 10th, Charlie was supposed to bring her clothes over to her mom's to do her laundry. She usually did this on the same day every week, but the day keeps passing by and Charlie never shows up. So Kimberlyn calls her daughter to see if she's still planning on coming over, but there's no answer. And as the hours pass by, things start to seem a little bit off. Charlie wasn't calling anyone back, and she normally stayed in touch with her sister Phaedra daily. But even Phaedra can't get Charlie to answer the phone. And as the silence continues, Kimberlyn starts getting really worried. I mean, Charlie is pregnant, so her mom is thinking about if her and her baby are okay. Could there have been a complication in the pregnancy? Like, why isn't she reaching back out to us? So by 9 p.m. on February 10th, Kimberlyn and Phaedra decide to drive over to Charlie's home. It had been 24 hours since they had heard from her. And as they pull up to the driveway, they notice that something doesn't seem right. Charlie's car is gone. It's not in the driveway. And in this panic, Kimberly looks over at Phaedra and she's like, where is Charlie's car? But of course, Phaedra doesn't know the answer either. And when they walk up to the front door, it's locked. They knock, and as they expected, there is no answer. So they just start snooping around, and they find a window that's slightly open. And they're unable to slide it completely open, and Phaedra crawls into Charlie's house. Phaedra runs to the front door and opens it for her mom. And the scene is concerning, because one of Charlie's dogs, Zoe, seems to have been left there alone for hours, if not overnight. The dog had gone to the bathroom on the floor multiple times since she couldn't get out of the home. And Charlie loved her dogs. She would never just leave them alone willingly for this long. And that's when the thought hits Kimberlyn. What if she's like hemorrhaging in the bathroom or something? Because Charlie's bathroom was actually outside, disconnected from the main part of her home. So Kimberlyn and Phaedra, they run out there and they break into the little bathroom only to find it empty. So where could she be? This wasn't right. Soon Kimberlyn and Phaedra had called Adam Gaines over to Charlie's home where they all sat and discussed Charlie's possible whereabouts. And they were worried about her well-being because of her pregnancy. So many things could be wrong. And it's after this that Kimberlyn calls the police. 
And this really made her heart sink into her stomach because it's that moment that they had to accept that something was truly wrong in the situation. A missing persons report was filed and an officer told Kimberlyn not to worry because usually these cases are perfectly fine. Charlie probably lost her phone and she stayed at a friend's house. Oh, that's the worst I've learned at work whenever I say something like if a baby's sick or something and I say, oh, don't worry, it'll all be fine. It never is. Yeah. <laughs> like, because you see it be fine so often that it's easy to be like, oh, it's going to be okay. And then the time that you say it, it's not. And then they're just like devastated. Yeah. Ugh. I know because that is usually the case. People are usually okay. But then in the one situation, it's not. It's like just so sad. Yeah. And Kimberly didn't think it was going to be okay either. There was something weird. Only three days before this, Kimberlyn had asked Charlie to download the app Life360 on her phone. Have you heard of that app? Uh, no. Okay, so my friend's family, they all have this on their phones. And it's basically just like this location app. You can have your whole family connected to it and they can see your location. They can see if you're driving somewhere. I think even like how fast you're going. They can see if your phone just died, stuff like that. So it is really useful. Like if you have teenagers with phones or like you obviously just want them to be safe, you know. Mm -hmm. And then like in this case, Charlie was a grown adult, but again, she was single and she was pregnant. So her mom took comfort in knowing that she would, you know, be able to know where her daughter was if she needed help. And now it's three days later and Charlie seems like she did need help. So Kimberlyn checks her Life360 app. And the last ping that came from Charlie's phone was a location out in the middle of nowhere off of that dangerous road we talked about earlier, Hana Highway. Mm. Could Charlie have crashed? Yeah, you would almost immediately think car crash. Right. Because of the winding roads, because it's in the middle of nowhere. There is a lot of bamboo off the side of the roads, and I guess bamboo is really flexible. So Kimberlyn was saying that if your car rolls off the road, the bamboo won't necessarily break. Like, it can just pop back up and then it leaves cars hidden down below. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that was a big worry. And this ping on the Life360 app, it was at 10.56 on Sunday night, February 9th. Just a few hours after she had left Brooke's birthday party. And as Kimberlyn looked at this ping location, she kept thinking to herself, like, why would Charlie be out that late? Why was she in the middle of nowhere? What was she doing? Yeah, like, it's just really an odd place for her to be. Yeah, like you were leaving the party at eight to go home. She had work the next day. She had plans the next day. And then it's like, why are you off the Hana Highway in the middle of nowhere at 11 p.m.? Yeah. And this, like this being so odd, is what first made her realize that it was probably for Steven. That's the one person that Charlie would jump for and the one person who expected Charlie to jump for him whenever he needed her. Now, Kimberlyn, she informs the police of these thoughts while they are talking to her and taking the police report at her home in Haiku later on February 10th. And they assure her that they would drive down Hana Highway to look for Charlie, as well as contact the Hana police and ask them for help. 
Now, police would start these searches the next morning on February 11th. Kimberlyn, Phaedra, Brooke, and the rest of the family try to get some sleep that first night after reporting Charlie as missing, but sleep was hard to come by. There was a lot of tossing and turning and most of all anxiety, this deep worry about where Charlie might be. The situation just felt worse as time dragged on, and soon as the sun started to rise, Kimberlyn headed out of the home to drive down Hana Highway and search herself. She just couldn't sit still. How could she sit in her home doing nothing when she knew Charlie was in trouble? So she woke up Phaedra and took her along. And as Kimberlyn and Phaedra did this, Brooke made her way over to the Mana Foods at about 8.30 a.m. Remember, she had worked there before with Stephen. And she went there to talk to Stephen, to ask him if he knew anything about where Charlie could be. Brooke just had this intuition that she needed to talk with him. And when she asks him about Charlie, he's like, yeah, you know what? I did see Charlie Sunday night. She actually helped me get my truck fixed after it broke down on the Hana Highway. And as this conversation progresses, Brooke starts to not feel right about the things she's being told. And she starts getting emotional. So she ends up just walking away from Stephen so she didn't cause a scene inside the store. She later on testifies that at this time, quote, he gave us the best information we had so far, which was that he had seen her, end quote. Now, as Kimberlyn drove the Hana Highway, she started to fill with rage because there was not one officer out there looking for Charlie like they said they would. They had a feeling they were going to do this on their own. Kimberlyn and Phaedra were throwing rocks down the ravine, hoping they would hear it hit a car that may be hidden in the bamboo. They were stopping at every corner, yelling out Charlie's name and also yelling out for her dog, Nala. Remember, one of Charlie's dogs was found in her home, but Nala was not. Nala was missing right alongside Charlie. So after their drive, they made their way over to the police department where Kimberlyn asked if anyone was doing anything to search for her daughter. She reminds them she's pregnant and that this is a dire situation. And the officers inform her that they did drive the road, but they didn't see anything. The officer who was first assigned to the case had printed out missing person flyers, but he wasn't keeping great contact with the family. But soon, Nelson Hamilton and Danny Dodds from the Maui Police Department joined the case and the search for Charlie. And finally, Kimberlyn felt some peace knowing that there were two people on this case who truly cared about finding her daughter. And the communication between her and the law enforcement got much stronger at this point. Now, while Kimberlyn was driving the Hana Highway that morning of February 11th, Maui police did get in contact with Stephen Capo Bianco just about seven hours after Kimberlyn filed the missing persons report. This is Charlie's ex-boyfriend and the father of her baby. And through questioning, Stephen repeats what he told Brooke, that he did see Charlie on February 9th, which was a Sunday night. He says that his truck had broken down about three miles down the Hana Highway past where Charlie's phone had last pinged. He says that he got a ride home from his friend Kyle Knight, and when Charlie took him back out to his truck later on, it turns out that his car wasn't in that bad of shape. 
he had actually just shaken his battery loose. So Steven says that he had Charlie shine her lights onto the front of his car while he fixed it. And once his truck was fixed, Charlie was following behind him while he drove home and he could see her headlights behind his truck. She was driving behind him just in case his truck broke down again, but at some point he lost her headlights in his rearview mirror. But he wasn't worried about her. He assumed she made it home that night just as he did. He says that he got home by 11 p.m. and then he texted Charlie in the morning to thank her for coming out to help him. But his timeline doesn't really add up because first of all, Kyle says that he never picked up Steven from a broken down truck on the night of February 9th. Steven also had Skyped with his girlfriend Cassandra till about 8.15 on February 9th. And he told her that after their Skype, he was going to take a shower and then head out to help his friend work on his truck. And it's hours later at 2.30 a.m. on February 10th that Stephen calls Cassandra again and he seems out of it. And he shows her his hands and they're all beat up. And he wanted her to know that he smashed his hand in the hood of his own truck and then he got a cut on his other hand from the battery terminals. But then Stephen tells co-workers that he actually got his hand injuries while working on a friend's Honda. He says that while he was working on that Honda, a cable connected to the power window wrapped around his hands. And then to the police, he says that no, no, his hand injuries were because of his jobs at Mana Foods as a baker. And also, he hid it on his truck window. (laughs) He's just telling all kinds of lies. Exactly. He has four different stories at this point for why his hands are all beat up. First... It's, you know, the truck, he hit it on the hood and the battery, then it's his friend's Honda. Oh, but wait, I think it's actually from working as a baker. Oh, but also it could have been my truck's window. So, okay, Stephen, good job on keeping that story straight. Which one is it? People are so stupid, which is like amazing because then they get caught. But like, you just wonder, like, how are you that dumb? Yeah. Anyway. Stephen also said that he made it home by 11 p.m. that night. Well, one of his former co-workers saw Stephen that night. This is Jennifer Taylor, and she said that she saw him driving into Hana on the Hana Highway sometime between 9.30 p.m. and 11.30 p.m. And he was alone, but something was weird about the car he was driving. It didn't look like he was in his forerunner it looked like he was in a forerunner with rounded edges. So Stephen had a forerunner with sharp edges, a 1992 model, and Charlie, well, she had a 1997 model with round edges. Huh. So I think this coworker believes he was driving Charlie's forerunner because she said it did not look like his. Yeah, you can clearly t- tell a difference because they look different. Right. Now, other weird things happened with Steven. So his friend Ashley Silva asked him what he thought about the disappearance of Moriera Monslave, who is another missing persons case in Maui that is actually still open. And Steven tells Ashley that I have no idea what happened to her. But you know what? If it was me, I would have thrown her off a cliff because that way no one would ever find her. 
It's only a day or two after this conversation that a searcher reports finding possible drag marks under a guardrail leading to a cliff. And this discovery was made near mile marker 18 on the Hana Highway. Now, this area was searched using a helicopter and the fire department, but nothing was found. And three weeks before Charlie went missing, Stephen asked his co-worker, Ginseng Mueller, the best way to get away with murder. And then months after the disappearance in April of 2014, Stephen tells another co-worker, John Palicki, that he might have to keep himself from killing someone again because he saw that his cousin had bruises on her arm, showing that someone had grabbed her. Now, remember, Charlie went missing on the night of February 9th, but all searches and questioning starts on February 11th. There's that one day in between, February 10th. That's the day that everyone's starting to realize that Charlie is gone, and it's late that night when she is reported missing. Well, remember the Kajer brothers, the twins that Charlie saw on February 9th when she cut Kurt's Kurt's hair. Well, on the night of February 10th, Stephen comes over to the twins' home to drop off Kurt's backpack. And when he did so, the other brother, Drew, asks Stephen if he wanted to party for a bit over at their sister's house. They would usually meet up and smoke some weed, but Stephen seemed like he was in a big hurry. And he told Drew, no, I don't want to party. I'm actually really busy. And as he went to leave, Drew asked him if he had seen Charlie that day. Everyone was actually trying to get a hold of her. But Stephen said that he hadn't seen her in a while which is contrary to what he tells police the next day that he did in fact see Charlie Sunday night. Now, on February 12th, the family saw a little glimmer of hope when Charlie's dog Nala is found. She had actually been found two days earlier on February 10th, but no one was aware of who the dog belonged to. Nala was found around 7 a.m. on the 10th at Naiku Marketplace, which is between Kiane and Hana. And Nala was a pit bull, and this location was 13 miles from where the, her cell phone had last pinged, and it was far from where Charlie's car would later be discovered. Nala's feet were really clean. They weren't dirty and they weren't cracked as you would expect if Nala had walked that far. Charlie's sister Fiona picks up Nala on February 12th. And you heard me right. Charlie's car was found on February 13th, 2014. Someone had reached out to Adam Gaines, Charlie's good friend who was going to help her raise her baby. And they told him that they heard a rumor that Charlie's car was spotted. Charlie's stepdad went out searching and he called Kimberlyn crying to let her know that they did find Charlie's car. It was burnt and it was destroyed. Where? So her car was super far from the cell phone ping. It was actually 20 miles away from the ping, but only 10 miles away from her home. And it was found tipped over on its side. And it's found in this area that is actually known for dumping stolen cars. Like, I guess all sorts of people like go out there and leave destroyed cars there. Oh, yeah. We saw a place like that in Kauai. Oh, really? I we had a place like that in Alaska. 
that we would drive by like on the side by side. Yeah, it's kind of weird, huh? It is. You're like, why are all these old rusted cars here? I know it always gives me the creeps when I go past a place like that. Like even though it's probably just like stolen cars that people dump there, uh, it just creeps me out. I'm like, what is this? And this area on Maui is actually near an area nicknamed as Jaws, which is like a local surf spot. And there was a resident of this area that actually remembers being woken up by a thick and very toxic smoke filling the air around 1245 a.m. This resident lived only five to 10 minutes away from the Jaws surf spot. And the only relief found in finding Charlie's car was that there was no evidence of Charlie inside that car. So now they're thinking, well, maybe she got out of her car and maybe she fell down one of the ravines herself. So searches continue for Charlie. And while Stephen did join and was being cooperative with police, things still seemed off. Not only was he acting very cold and unemotional about Charlie's disappearance, he was obviously trying to point everyone away from a certain area. So let's go back to that first day that anyone started searching, February 11th. It's the day after Charlie is reported missing. Remember, Brooke had gone to Mana Foods that morning to ask Stephen if he had seen her. And as her mom and sister drove the Hana Highway doing their own search, Brooke decided Stephen needed to help them more. Since he was the last one to see her sister, she texts Stephen around 1.30 p.m. asking him for his help, and he agreed to come meet her at her home. So Stephen arrives at Brooke's home by 3 p.m., and he told her that she could follow him out on the Hana Highway. He would take her out to mile marker 20. Now, as Stephen is taking Brooke to the spot he claims to have last seen Charlie, they pass by Kimberlyn and Phaedra, who were on their way home from doing their own search of the highway. Brooke and Kimberlyn pull over, and at this point, Phaedra jumps into Brooke's car to continue following Stephen. And once they arrive at mile marker 20, where Stephen claims his truck broke down, the three search for about 10 minutes before they all leave. Stephen drives off ahead of them while Brooke and Phaedra occasionally stop along the way to call out for Charlie and search for her. Once they reach mile marker 15.5, it's been about 30 minutes since they parted ways with Stephen. And Brooke sees a dirt road that goes off the Hana Highway. This is right near where Charlie's cell phone pinged. So she decides to turn down it. And as she is driving, she sees headlights approaching her car. And it's none other than Stephen Capo Bianco. And they both stop their vehicles to talk. And Brooke is like, hey, were you able to get your car down there? Like, will my car make it down there to search? And Stephen is like, no, no, I don't think so. But I already looked down there. No worries. If you want, you can hop into my car and I'll take you down. But Brooke and Phaedra decline and they decide to head home. That dirt road actually led to Nua Alua Bay, and this location would soon be a spot of gruesome discovery. This area near this road was also exactly like I said, where Charlie's phone pinged. And no one had looked in the exact spot of the ping because it literally was in the middle of nowhere. 
So Phaedra started thinking to herself, you know what? This is a pretty accurate app. I'm going to search right there where it says she was. So she gathered some friends and they head out on the evening of February 13th. Now, this is a heavily wooded rainforest jungle area with no population. So when this little group arrives for their search, Phaedra starts walking into the bushes, following that dirt road. And she comes across a DVD on the ground. The DVD had Twilight written on it. And this is a DVD that Phaedra knew Charlie kept in her glove box. And as she starts running towards her friends, they call out to her, hey, we found something. And it's a blue and white polka dot shirt. They just keep coming across clue after clue, like a little trail. I wonder if they left it there or picked it up. Uh, They pick it up. Ah. I know. So they do keep coming across all these clues and that blue and white polka dot shirt. Remember, we talked about it. It was the shirt that Charlie was wearing on the night of February 9th during Brooke's birthday party. Now, at the same moment that Phaedra sees Charlie's shirt, she takes a deep breath and this foul smell fills her nose. She explains it as being something rotten. Uh. Phaedra starts running again until she reaches the water where she sees a blanket that belongs to Charlie. It had blood on the corner, but it was also in the water, so most of the blood had been washed away. Now, these searchers, they found that green blanket, which was actually infested with maggots. They found Charlie's clothes, a pair of Perry Ellis black jeans, a gray hooded sweatshirt, and two rolls of masking tape. And... Phaedra loses it as she realizes this harsh reality that she's facing because it's clear that someone hid these items. And at this point, it's getting dark. Phaedra and her friends are too worried to stay out there any longer, but they're also too scared to leave the items behind. So they collect everything they could and they bring it back to Kimberly's house. So that answers your question. Uh... Yeah. And Phaedra had called her mom and she's like, mom, like we found these items and Kimberly and Kimberlyn, she says, like, leave the items there. But it was too late. Yeah, it's like, call the cops. Yeah, like, just call the cops. I think they were getting too scared to wait out there. I guess there was really little cell phone reception. So I'm not sure if they could call the cops from there. And they're obviously young. I think Phaedra is... Charlie's youngest sister and it sounds like it was a bunch of her friends which is actually so sad that she found all these items I know and it would be super creepy Uh, yeah so I think they got freaked out and they grabbed all they could they threw it in the car and they bring it back to Kimberlyn's home did they get the blanket or just left it there I think they did oh I know for sure they grabbed the clothes because they bring those items back and they lay the items out on the ground And Kimberlyn, she couldn't take her eyes off of Charlie's black skirt. This chill ran down her spine as she looked at the many holes in this maternity skirt. All the holes were in the area that covered her daughter's pregnant belly. And Kimberlyn says, quote, I don't think I breathed right after that. I don't think I've breathed right since, end quote. Uh, Probably because they knew. Yeah, that was like the moment she knew something was really bad. 
And it's also the moment she she kind of looked at these at the holes all over the belly. And that showed her that the baby, Joshua, was targeted. And she knew without a doubt in this moment that Stephen had something to do with it. Now, Kimberly actually finds Stephen that night and she starts screaming at him like, what did you do? What did you do to Charlie? But he doesn't answer. The following day, police officers start their own search of Nalua Bay, where they find two lower jawbone fragments that would later be matched to Charlie Scott. I sent you a picture, Mom, of the one of the jawbone fragments. Oh, I saw it. I know. It's so sad. It looks like you can see her teeth. It looks like a pretty big section of her jaw. It does. I had to look at it for a while to try to determine what it was. There's, It's like sitting literally in the leaves. There's some dirt on it. Yeah. The, it, yeah. You can, you can tell it's some teeth. That pink stuff below the teeth is like her jaw. They found that? Yes. They found... <sighs> two pieces of jawbone like that in the ground in the ground by the water like right around where phaedra found all those other items okay and like i said it was matched to charlie scott so those are charlie scott's jaw bones now police also found charlie's black bra five fingernails skin fragments clumps of red hair and a body piercing with flesh that was still attached to it And all these items would be matched back to Charlie Scott. Remember that guardrail that looked like it had drag marks by it? Well, there was a pair of DKNY blue jeans that were found near that area and they were stained with blood. Now, both the black jeans and blue jeans were a size 3230. Blood stains on these jeans were exact matches to Charlie Scott. Which I'm thinking, they didn't say this outright, but I'm thinking that they're thinking these are Steven's jeans. Like 3230 sounds like a guy. Yeah, that's what I was thinking because that's a man's size. Yeah, exactly. So they find one pair of the jeans and that sweatshirt out by where they found all of Charlie's items. And then they find this other pair of jeans out by that cliff which we'll kind of get into but it almost seems like he maybe killed her in one spot and then moved her and possibly threw her off this cliff oh my gosh and so i think that is why there's two jeans found because they do end up matching the blood on the blue jeans found over by this cliff as being charlie scott's blood And then years later, just before a trial, the FBI did additional DNA testing and they matched a three inch long black hair to Stephen Capo Bianco. And that hair was found in the front right pocket of the jeans. But it was later ruled that because of the timing, they would not be permitted to present these results at trial. Oh, that's not fair. So they couldn't say, I guess, that they found these blue jeans by the cliff with her blood and his hair, which is so stupid to me, but whatever. I don't know if because of the timing means because they tested that hair so many years down the road, Uh, but I'm not sure. So it was July 18th, 2014, that a grand jury indicted Stephen Capo Bianco of second degree murder and second degree arson. Quote, 
the suspect had intentionally or knowingly caused Carly Scott's death in an especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel manner that manifested exceptional depravity, end quote. And Stephen, he pleaded not guilty to the charges. Oh, jeez. Yeah, of course. And this is, or was, an entirely circumstantial case. Because unfortunately, Charlie's body has never been discovered. Her death was ruled as a homicide after the discovery of her clothes. I mean, her skirt had all those holes in it, and then they found the pieces of her jawbone. And this does lead people to believe she was possibly stabbed. And there is an expert that testifies at the trial that the pieces of jawbone did seem to have been serrated by something like a knife. Oh, that's sad. They also found, like, knife marks on a tree nearby all these items. I know, it's so sad. And I also read that possibly if someone had been punched hard in the face, pieces of the jawbone could break like that. I know. It does seem weird to me that there's just these little pieces of jawbone. Like I kind of said earlier, it does seem that it's believed this is what it seems like to me. This is kind of what I got out of everything. It They don't lay it out super clear, but it does seem that it's believed that Stephen killed Charlie the night of February 9th. He lured her out there, and then it seems that he left her off of that dirt road over by, is it Nua, Nua Lua Bay, where all those items were found. And then the next day, it seems that he went back just before she was reported missing and possibly took her body over to that cliff and threw her off. What a psycho. Like, how can you be that evil? And also, I was just asking Jacob about this. Wouldn't you be so scared to just be, like, handling a body, like, after you kill someone? Like, you know you did something evil, and now you're there with this, like, a dead body in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) Like, you're not scared? Well, they're psychotic so they probably don't think the same way we do yeah i guess their brain does have to be like so far gone to do something like this he had to have like cut her up or something i just i don't see how that jaw piece would get there so that's my guess no definitely because i mean i do think he took like two days to do this and maybe it was easier to move her body after by doing something like that horrible by having to you know dismember her and move her Uh uh-huh her poor family i know i feel so sad for her family i feel so sad for her sister that found those items oh i know like how now it was a long trial and the trial was postponed multiple times like it literally from me looking at the timeline of it it seems like it was just drug out At one point, there was even a hung jury while they were deliberating and they just could not come to a conclusion. And the family was really sad. They posted it on Facebook, like, we're sad to announce right now. There's just a hung jury. They cannot agree. Like, we'll see, you know, what the outcome is. Now, eventually, the jurors, they're dismissed over Christmas so that they can spend some time with their family. So they were like, it seems to me like they were deliberating for weeks which just seems totally crazy. But they do come back 
on December 28, 2016, right after Christmas, and they find Stephen Capobianco guilty of second-degree murder and arson. And it's on March 24, 2017, that a judge sentenced Stephen to 40 years for second-degree murder and 10 years for arson. And the sentences, they will run consecutively, and Stephen will serve 50 years in prison before he is eligible for parole in 2064. Now, he was 27 at the time of his sentencing, so he will be 77 years old when he has the chance to gain his freedom. Stephen continues to try and appeal his murder conviction. One of his arguments is that the break in jury deliberations over Christmas actually prejudiced him, and it's because jurors couldn't avoid hearing the news or public opinion about the case. And there is one Facebook page in support for Stephen. It's called Free Stephen Capo Bianco. And it reads, Stephen Capo Bianco went down unjustly and from prosecutorial malfeasance, malfeasance, I don't know how you say that. I'm sorry to the Scott family, but I'm even more sorry that they believe the person responsible for the death of their daughter is behind bars. He is still out there and an innocent man has lost his freedom. Free Stephen Capo Bianco. And this is a public group on Facebook that was created just this past December, last month in 2021. And the group has a following of one whole group member, the person who made it. Uh, I was going to say, is it his family? Is it his girlfriend? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's just some dude that wants to support his friend, I guess. So do not go follow this page. Let's keep that dude on his own. He needs to take several seats and just shut up. Steven is where he belongs. Now, there are three things that Kimberly has been fighting for after her daughter's tragic ending. The first is to add a victim's right bill to the Hawaii Constitution. Kimberly says 32 other states have victim rights in their law, and it's time for Hawaii to reform their justice system to include the voices of victims. And another thing that she finds wrong about Hawaii's justice system is that they are one of the only states that doesn't consider torture or premeditation as an element of first-degree murder. So while this case would have most likely been a first-degree murder case in any other state here in the United States, it was only considered a second-degree murder case, even though Stephen was believed to have lured Charlie out here with the intent to kill her. In Hawaii, to get life without parole, a perpetrator has usually done something such as kill a police officer. Most killings of civilians are considered second-degree murder in Hawaii and often only carry a 20-year-to-life sentence. Quote, We hope that Charlie was the last person to be tortured to death in Hawaii that doesn't warrant a first-degree murder charge. We also hope that Joshua was the last unborn child to be killed maliciously that will not have justice. End quote. And that second part of the quote plays into the third thing Kimberlyn is fighting for, to make a law against feticide. Quote, 
We have done our homework as horrible as it is to research, but Joshua felt what was done to him. Charlie's son felt pain and he died horribly with his mother. How can we continue to allow our state to ignore feticide as a crime with a victim separate from the mother? End quote. So if you don't know, feticide is the homicide of a fetus. So killing a baby that a mother is pregnant with. It seems like common sense that this should be prosecuted as killing and not just something like an assault or connected to the crime against the mother. But I guess some people don't believe in feticide laws because they don't understand the difference between abortion and feticide, which if you don't understand that distinction, I don't even know what to say to you. Like someone cannot just come up to you and kill your baby. I mean, that's illegal, obviously. It's it's absolutely devastating. Now, there is a Facebook page where Charlie's friends and family post updates on the progress they're making in fighting for these laws and updates on Stephen Capobianco's conviction. This page is called Find Charlie Scott, and you guys should all go like it and follow it and give the family some support. Now, on this page, I did see one thing and I wanted to bring it up really quick because it's just crazy to me. And it shows that some people can just be so horrible to these people that are going through tragedy. And we really need to find kindness within us. And like, sometimes we just have to put these other people before ourselves. So a few days after Charlie went missing, her family went into her home to gather some of her things and they realized that a bunch of her stuff was stolen. Well, it wasn't stolen. It was actually taken by her landlord. Things like a TV and things like her baby's toys, which were these little handmade toys. And Kimberlyn believes the landlord probably thought they were valuable because they were like these nice handmade toys. So Kimberlyn reaches out to the landlord and she's like, um, hey, like you need to give us our daughter's stuff back. She's missing. Now, remember, at this point, it's not really obvious what happened to Charlie. So this landlord is just being a dick. And he's like, no, I will give you the stuff if you give me three hundred and fifty dollars. Or I'll drop that charge of three hundred and fifty dollars if you let me keep the TV which is like, what? Excuse me? No. (laughs) Now the news kind of gets involved and the landlord tells the news that Charlie's family is lucky that he's actually not going to be suing them because they broke into Charlie's home, which is his property, without his permission when they went over on February 10th and they were looking for their missing daughter. Ugh. Like, literally screw him. Like, he is so rude. Anyways, I'm not sure exactly what's going on with the landlord, but it does actually seem like Charlie's family was either able to get law enforcement to charge the landlord with stealing Charlie's stuff or they were able to sue him themselves. And there was like this lawsuit going on that I found on their Facebook page and they were kind of giving updates on that. That is just so messed up. Like people do not need to act like that. I guess he's apologized now. He should be extremely embarrassed for acting like that to a family who is searching for their daughter who ends up being dead and 
is killed by her boyfriend. Like, Yeah, it's kind of weird. Jeez, people just think before you do things. Being pregnant should not be a reason that a woman is more likely to be murdered. That is a horrible statistic that played out in real life in the case of Charlie Scott, who just wanted to keep her baby and become a mother. But a self-centered and evil man found that the baby would get in the way of his young life. Thankfully, the justice system took that life he was planning away from him. But that will never bring Charlie or Joshua back. May their memories live on in legacy and advocacy for law changes in Hawaii. Because this is where we're going in two days. And it's an island of Hawaii in the middle of the ocean. So I can play whenever I want to in the sand. We're going to Maui where my great-great-grandma is from. And to get to where she lives, we have to drive on the famous Hana Highway. Did you know that the Hana Highway has 59 bridges and 620 curves? It's only 65 miles long. But because the road is so challenging, it takes about four hours from Kahului to Hana, which is luck. Bye. Have a great day. Thanks for listening today, guys. We hope you enjoyed the show as sad as it was. These cases sometimes are just very informative to learn about when you realize that there are, you know, certain laws that aren't protecting people or laws that need to be put in place. So I find these cases very important to talk about, even though they're very hard. Now, remember to go leave us a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts, or if you listen to us on Spotify, make sure to rate us there because they just added that feature this year and we need help with ratings there. This podcast was researched, written, hosted, and edited by me, Kayla Waters. It's co-hosted by Alicia Jenkins. The palate cleanser is given to us by Charlie Waters. Our original graphic art was created by Arthur Max, and our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. Also, follow us on social media to get more pictures and information on each case. You can find us on Instagram at True Crime X Pod, True Crime E X P O D, and you can find us on TikTok at True Crime Exposed Podcast. Stick around if you would like to hear an organization that you can get involved with. Okay, guys, so before I get into the organization today, I wanted to just say one of the things I do want to do and I'm hoping I can do, like I said, I'm going to Maui this 
week and we will definitely be driving the road to Hana. So on that road, if you're in Maui, there is actually an area that Kimberlyn has dedicated to Charlie that they are, they call Charlie's Bridge. And I saw this on the Facebook page, Find Charlie Scott. And at one point, they decorated this bridge with blue. And Kimberlyn said like she loved color. She loved like things that are fun and happy. And if they could paint the whole road a rainbow, they would. So I'm really hoping that I get the opportunity to go out there to Charlie's Bridge and leave something blue for Charlie in memory of her and Joshua. And if I do this, I will be sharing this experience on social media. So I just thought that would be something that would make me really feel like connected to this case. Like I said, I felt like I was meant to cover it this week. And if you're in Maui, Hawaii, please make sure to show some love and respect to Charlie, whether that means going out to Charlie's Bridge, whether that means helping Kimberlyn fight for the laws she believes needs to be added into Hawaii's constitution and legislature. Okay, guys, Maui does have its own Crime Stoppers organization. So you can visit MauiCrimestoppers.net to visit their website. Maui Crime Stoppers offers rewards of up to $1,000 for information leading to the arrest and indictment in unsolved crimes. Maui Crime Stoppers is a community-based nonprofit organization dedicated to solving and preventing serious crime in partnership with citizens, media, law enforcement, and the criminal justice system in Maui County. Now, all the calls made to Maui Crime Stoppers are anonymous. Callers are given this identification code number and they do not have to give their name and rewards are claimed by that identification code number. On the site I gave you, MauiCrimestoppers.net, there is a donate button and you can go there and get involved with the Crime Stoppers if you know anything about a case. 